I want us to visit a story, the birth of a king, the Christmas story. I want us to go there in September, and I believe it'll help us take a fresh look at the Christmas story. We've been walking through the Old Testament for over 20 weeks now. We've now come to the New Testament, and I really believe not being in the holiday season, taking a fresh look at this passage will help us see it in new light. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. If you've been with us, we've been journeying through the Old Testament for over 20 weeks now. About the uh, latter part of January, we launched a study through the story. And you can get a copy of that. It's a chronologically arranged version of Scripture set in a novel form so that we can understand the theme or the main story of the story of God. The Old Testament chronicles the journey of God's dealings with His people throughout the centuries and consistently woven through the fabric of the Old Testament is this prediction, this promise of a Messiah who will come on the scene. And after generation after generation, unfolding revelation after unfolding revelation through the Old Testament, you find the people of God waiting expectantly in the Old Testament for the Messiah to show up. And then you see Him. All throughout this waiting period, God has done everything possible that he can possibly do to restore a relationship with his people. He has blessed them. He has provided for them. He has even pursued them in their times of disobedience and foolish mistakes, continually providing a way back into relationship with him. But it seems, even though there were cycles of disobedience and repentance, it seems they never learned. It seems that they didn't really listen. So, At the end of the Old Testament, he goes silent for 400 years, a long stretch of silence, but it's in that period that the anticipation for the Messiah continues to build. And that 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that silence is shattered. That 400 years of no revelation from God gives way to the greatest revelation that God would ever give to man. God shatters the silence by sending his son. It's been many, many years in the making, but God's plan is coming together. He himself is stepping into the arena of humanity to rescue us back to himself. He has a plan to deal with the issue of our sin. He has a plan to deal with the issue of the consequences of our sin. And he's going to light a way back for us to be in relationship with him through the birth of a baby that we will later call a king. This weekend, we celebrate the hinge on which all of history swings. 
That moment 2,000 years ago when God himself traveled from heaven to earth at just the right time to keep his promise. And that's what the Christmas story is all about. God delivering on his promises. Have you ever thought about the theology of the Christmas story outside the context of the Christmas season? Sometimes I wonder if God's trying to send us a message that we're not getting because the message of Christmas gets lost in the hustle of the holidays or maybe because we've heard it so many times the same old way throughout the years. But let's stop and take a fresh look at Christmas, the story of Christmas in September while it's still 100 degrees outside. There are no Christmas trees, no decorative lights, no cultural trappings. And we're able to treat this passage of Scripture like we do every passage every Sunday and simply ask the question, God, what are you saying to us through these verses? Remember, there's been one storyline that we found from Genesis all the way until now. One storyline throughout the Bible. The one thread woven through the entire story is this. God desires to reconcile people back to himself. God's passionate desire is to be with us. And since the fall of man in Genesis, God has lovingly pursued us to bring us back into relationship with him. And this plot of God's pursuit of us, this storyline reaches its pinnacle at the birth of Jesus. Never up to that point, never had God's love been more clear. Never had God's passion been more present than the day God robed himself in human flesh and became a man. But when Jesus lived, there were many people who missed that revelation. God was walking beside them literally in the flesh and blood and they missed the Messiah. He had been predicted. He had been promised. He had been prophesied. But there were people walking around Jesus that missed the clues and it became a case of mistaken identity. They saw the son of a carpenter but they could not buy into the idea that this son of a carpenter was an anointed Messiah. For 23 years now I've been having the privilege of flying around the world literally and preaching the gospel of Jesus. And when I fly to do an event or somewhere here in the U.S., sometimes I rent a car, but a lot of times, especially if I'm in New York, L.A. or some big city and it's a high traffic time, I actually want a local to drive me so that we can get to the event on time on a tight schedule. And it was one of those particular days a few years ago. I was flying into New York and doing an event in eastern Pennsylvania. And so uh, I was trying to get my flight arranged where we would miss the afternoon traffic and I could get to the event on time. Flight was a little delayed. I came down the escalator into the baggage claim, which normally there is somebody there that will have a sign with my name on it because of all these masses of people. I will know where to go. Or we have exchanged phone numbers in advance and they're telling me where they're parked after I get my luggage and they give me a description of their vehicle. And it's usually pretty seamless. Or maybe they've got a photograph ahead of time and they watch the escalator and they pick me out of the crowd when I come. Well, I come down, no sign, walk, get my bags, and I sit there literally for an hour waiting on a ride. I know it's New York, so I'm being patient. As I get nervous, knowing we're getting closer and closer to rush hour traffic in New York, getting out of New York into eastern Pennsylvania, I'm, I'm possibly going to be late for this event. 
And so I call my contact and he said, oh yes, Brian, your, your driver is there. Matter of fact, he's actually looking for you um, and he's in the airport in the baggage claim. He said, I was supposed to come get you, uh, but some things came up last minute. So I sent this guy, um, he's, a, he's a young guy and, and he's looking for you. And I said, well, I've been in the baggage claim for an hour. He said, well, he's been down there for an hour looking for you. And he said, what do you have on? I said, well, I don't remember, but I had a blue top. I gave him a color of what color my shirt was. And, and so, uh, you know, so we, an hour goes by and I still don't see this guy. There are masses of people. I still don't see this guy. And I call him back and I said, man, look, I'm waiting. He said, he keeps, he keeps looking for, he can't find you. So it came, it came all the way back around that in the course of the conversation, the man's phone that was picking me up had gone dead. And so he's having a conversation and we're talking through this middleman. Somewhere in the conversation with the middleman, the rider that was the guy, the driver that was supposed to pick me up had an assumption, a preconceived idea of who he was picking up. The, 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 the boss man that sent him to come get me told him, he said, you're going to get a pastor of a great church in Dallas who is, um, who is on the national board of directors for the thousands of, of our network of churches in the U.S. So when the guy left, he automatically assumed, I'm going to pick up a 75-year-old man with a graying comb over and a polyester suit carrying a briefcase. And so powerful were his assumptions by the description the man gave him that he walked by me three times. I didn't know who he was. He was looking for me, but his perception was so he missed me. Finally, the guy on the other end of the line said, no, he's not a 75-year-old dude wearing a polyester suit with a comb over. He's a young guy. He's probably got blue jeans on. And then he found me, finally. On the ride to the event, just making it just in time, a long ride through New York traffic, we had this conversation and we chuckled about the power of assumption. We chuckled about the power of perception. If you already strongly believe something, this is kind of what he and I came to a conclusion of. When you already, your mind already has you firmly believing something, you are not interested normally in listening to or paying attention to the facts. He even knew what color my shirt was. Instead, you continue to reinforce your own opinions. He said, you can't, I, I can't tell you how many 75-year-old dudes with comb-overs I went up to and said, are you a pastor in Dallas? And they looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> Cases of mistaken identity are more common than you think, especially when it related to Jesus being the Messiah. He comes into our world and the masses at that time were quite skeptical that a man having been born to peasant parents are actually going to be, that he's actually going to grow up to become the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In fact, in his own hometown in Nazareth, they seek to throw him off a cliff for blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God. It's interesting when you read the Christmas story in each of the four gospels, you see different things emphasized. And when I've taught in new converts classes or new believers classes or starting point classes or even in, in, in seminary, people ask the question, why does Matthew tell this story and Mark doesn't? Why does Luke say it this way and John says it that way? Well, first of all, there are four different personalities that God is speaking through. And so they're going to look at life just like you and I do through a different set of lenses. But also they each four of the four had a different audience they were 
were writing to. So there were different things they needed to emphasize to get the same message to a different audience. It's amazing. You read in Matthew, Matthew's audience was a Jewish audience. So he writes an account of Jesus that is fulfilling the prophecies that clearly point Jesus is the king. Matthew 1.1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And since if you read beyond there, there's all these begats and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. To you, that may not be a big deal. If you were Jewish in that day and time, they knew that the Messiah would have to come from the tribe of Judah. He would have to come as a son or from the line of David. And genealogy meant everything to a Jewish audience looking for its Messiah. Now you go to Mark and you read Mark. Mark doesn't say anything at all about the birth of Jesus. He just picks up in the middle of the ministry of Jesus. He's writing to both Jews and Gentiles or non-Jews. And he points out, there's, it's the shortest of the Gospels. There's a whole, uh, a whole lot of action and very little talk because Mark is trying to highlight the fact that, that Jesus was this miracle worker and his intent is to help us see Jesus as a servant redeemer who chose to be sacrificed for us. Luke, on the other hand, is writing to Greeks. The Greek was a very educated audience, a very philosophical audience, and they wanted facts. They wanted documentation. So when Luke opens his gospel, he says in Luke 1 and 3, he is a physician. Luke is a medical doctor, and he writes, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. And so Luke gives several clear snapshots of Jesus' birth that are not found in that same way in any of the other gospels. He gives us the when and the where and the who, and it is a very orderly account that surrounds the inbreaking of God into humanity through the birth of Jesus. John gives us more of a 10,000 foot view of God coming to earth, a larger, a, a bird's eye view of what the Christmas story is really all about. He says in John 1 1, in the beginning, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was with God in the beginning he's talking about Jesus being the word he was with God in the beginning and I want you to notice how the Bible starts in Genesis 1 1 in the beginning God created the heaven and earth and here's John in the New Testament saying in the beginning Jesus the word was with God he's trying to let us know that Jesus didn't just show up into the world the day he was born into Bethlehem he was there in the creation of all things he is as eternal as God the Father and God the Spirit and he is referred to as the Word because he is the fulfillment of the Word of God. John 1.3 says, he goes on in his introduction of his gospel, through him, Jesus, all things were made without him. Nothing was made that has been made. He is the total fulfillment of the Word of God. So here in September... What are some everyday takeaways of the Christmas story, the birth of the king, that we can apply to everyday life that are not just diluted by the trappings of the holiday season? Number one, God uses people. And I want you to see this. Mary and Joseph are a part of the story of bringing heaven to earth, of God becoming man, and God chose in his own plan to use a virgin girl and, and, a, and a carpenter, a peasant woman and a carpenter to, it, to allow the breaking of God to come into humanity. God always uses people. He uses families. He uses individuals. And as you study, one of the themes through the entire storyline of the Bible is that God picked Abraham and Sarah. 
Sarah. Here they are, old and infertile, and he opens their womb and gives them a son that begins the establishment of a nation. And he later tells, he tells Abraham, through your seed, Abraham, through this nation, all the descendants of the earth are going to be blessed. I mean, God is making these promises, but one of the point of the promises is that everywhere you turn, whether it's through David or Esther or all of the people, time and time again, when God is ready to do something, he uses people. He uses people in spite of our flaws. In the Christmas story, a young virgin girl named Mary, her husband-to-be named Joseph, a simple carpenter, average people who bring the hero of all heroes into the world. God had a plan. He could have done anything, but he chose, he has chosen to use people. You know, I, um, I started preaching as a teenage kid, and so Um, I didn't have anywhere to preach. I had a lot of preach in me. And like the Bible said, there was a fire shut up in my bones. But I had a preach in me before anybody wanted to listen to my preach. So I would go out in in some of my grandpa's land and I would stand on a levee and I'd preach to the fish. I mean, I just wax eloquent to the fish. And when they quit flopping, I'd turn around and I'd preach to the cows. And the cows would moo. And and, uh, when they quit mooing, I kept on preaching anyway. And some people say, well, pastor, how do you preach to so many different kinds of people? You know, you go to some places to preach and they're all hollering and shouting. And then you go to some and they're all quiet. I said, look, I was preaching when nobody listened. I was preaching to flopping fish and mooing cows. So I can preach to just about anybody that will listen in any particular setting. And one day I'm sitting there, probably 17 years old, and I'm preaching. And, and, and I'm thinking about one day I'm going to have an opportunity to preach to somebody besides swimming things and mooing things. <laughs> And I got overwhelmed by the fact that God had chosen me. Why would he pick a 17-year-old kid to preach the gospel? And I walked out of the field into my grandfather's house. And he was on the front porch. He'd come in to get a glass of tea before he went back out to work. And, and I said, uh, I said, Papa, why did he pick us, you know? You're, you're a bivocational pastor and you got a third grade education. You worked in the cotton fields. You know, you're not qualified. I'm not qualified. Why did he pick us? It seems to me as a, as a, as a junior in high school that my school would be better reached if Gabriel would show up in the hallways between classes, you know, and just say, repent. You know, it seems easier Michael would show up in the field house where all my friends are playing football and just there would be this supernatural revelation. Why did he pick us? And without really even pondering about it, my quick-witted grandfather said, because Michael and Gabriel don't know what it is to be redeemed. Michael can't tell the story of the grace of God. Michael can't tell the story of what it was to be lost and what it is now to be found. He said the angels in heaven sing of the holiness of God, the splendor of God, the glory of God. But who better to tell the story of the grace of God than those of us whose lives have been transformed? We have been lost and now we're found and he has picked us to tell the story. God uses people. It all started with a baby boy. This amazing story of Christmas. You've got the the Bible divided up into kind of three acts. The Old Testament is act one and the announcement of the whole Old Testament is Jesus is coming. The Gospels are Act 2, and the announcement of the Gospels is, here's the announcement, Jesus is here. From Acts to the end of Revelation, the third act of the, the Scripture is, He's coming again, you better get ready. Jesus is coming, Jesus is here, 
and Jesus is coming again. Those are the three acts of the story of God in Scripture. But it all starts with the birth of a baby boy. On a silent night outside of Bethlehem, God was born into the world. The voice that spoke the universe into existence. The voice that thundered from Mount Sinai. The voice that whispered still and soft to Elijah was now cooing and cuddling in a feed trough in a manger. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God uses people. Secondly, the Christmas story teaches us an everyday takeaway. God has a plan. Always has a plan. In this particular moment, His plan was to give a gift to us in the form of a person. The gift of salvation. His name, Jesus, Yeshua, means literally He will save His people from their sin. Only God could give us Jesus and only Jesus could give us the forgiveness of sin. I love, you may not see it as a, as a, as a holiday or Christmas verse, but I love 2 Corinthians 9.15 and it says, thanks be to God. Paul says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God had a plan to send his son before the creation of the world and his gift came with a price. Jesus would be born. He would be a defenseless baby. He would grow up and be become a man tempted in every point like we are yet he would be without sin he would take our place as a substitute on a cross die a death that we should have died as a perfect sacrifice to pay for our sin And, and when you think about that God's plan and God's gift are indescribable and yet God knowingly gave that gift knowing that people would reject it. That there would be cases where people would misunderstand it. Where there would be moments of mistaken identity. Where people would hear the message and and even be inoculated. They would hear it over and over and over again. And they wouldn't give their lives back. They would never return the favor. And ultimately all he's asking for is our hearts. But for some of us, we've we've heard the message but never surrendered our hearts. He's given the gift knowing that we would reject it. But he gave it to us because he loved us that much. He's had a plan. He's always had a plan. And you need to understand that God has a plan. He wants to use you. God uses people. But God has a plan for your life. He is sovereignly in control. And don't you think there were moments in the Old Testament when those believers that were waiting on the Messiah uh, with anticipation about what God's word had said, that there were moments year after year that he never showed up and they probably talked to their kids and their parents, you know, the, the kids were questioning, you know, how do we know? I mean, I mean, we've been waited for a long time. How do we know this is not fab- fable and fairy tale or just legend or wise tales? And parents held the line. God's going to keep his word. God's going to keep his word. He's got a perfect timing and a perfect plan. And then the Messiah shows up on the scene. And you may be in one of those seasons of silence or one of those moments of questioning. And I can promise you, God has a sovereign plan for your life. And it's a good plan for you according to his word. And here's a final thing we take away from this Christmas story that's very applicable to our lives. God uses people. God has a plan and God keeps his promises. In Genesis, God promised, Genesis 3.15 actually, after Adam and Eve sinned, the vision of God was destroyed. I mean, he wanted to be with them and sin separated. Genesis 3.15 said that the seed of woman was going to bruise the head of the serpent. There would be one that would come from Eve, from Adam, that would be born. The serpent had just masterminded and manipulated the downfall of Adam and Eve. And God said there is one coming all the way back in Genesis 3.15. 
He will bruise the head of that serpent. And from that moment in Genesis on, the scripture is woven with these promises of a Messiah. We call them prophecies. If, 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 if you didn't grow up or you think in terms of Old Testament prophecies, they are clues. They are foreshadowings. They are hints so that when Jesus does come on the scene, we're going to be able to recognize him as the one promised to Abraham, the one promised throughout the Old Testament that he would be recognized as the Savior. As you read through the Scriptures, and we've studied the Old Testament for the last 20 weeks, God is revealing His plan and validating as we look and wait with anticipation. There are over 300 Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah that would come. There are about 60 what are called major prophecies and 250 minor prophecies. And Jesus, the person of Jesus, fulfilled every single one of those prophetic utterances. Now, I want, I want you to think about this. It seems outlandish, these predictions. In Micah 5.2, this was the prophecy about the coming Messiah. This was the hint, the foreshadow, the picture. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So he says through the prophet Micah, when the Messiah comes, you're going to know because he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And at that time, Bethlehem was a town that had an average population of about 1,000 people. Though the chances of a guy being born in all the places he could be born in the world to be born in Bethlehem, okay, the probability is pretty high on that. Pretty unlikely on that. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel. There are over 700 years. This prophecy came 700 years before Mary and Joseph ever come on the scene. And yet it was predicted 700 years before Mary and Joseph that he would be born of a virgin. And Matthew 1 shares the fulfillment of that. All this took place to fulfill what was said through the prophet. And then Isaiah 53 and 3, it's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. He, will, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds or stripes, we are healed. Isaiah prophesies this image of crucifixion, uh, this, this torture, long 700 years before Jesus was ever arrested. And then in Zechariah, there is this reference of one of one of his close friends betraying him for 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah chapter number 11. And that was prophesied 400 years before Jesus was even born. And what about the death on the cross? The execution uh, method of uh, crucifixion was predicted 800 years. Jesus' death by crucifixion was predicted 800 years before crucifixion had even been invented. Crucifixion wasn't even used until 200 BC. That was in that 400 years of silence. And crucifixion was not used in a Jewish province until 63 BC, 63 years before Christ. But the psalmist in Psalm 22, 1,000 years before the crucifixion said this, verse 16, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. This is no accident. God had a plan and God keeps his promises. Peter Stoner is a mathematician 
a college professor in Pasadena, California, and he wanted to do a study of compound probability on the prophecies in the Bible. So he identified just eight of the major ones, eight. There are 300 plus, but he said, if I'm just going to take eight and I'm going to look at these eight and look at the likelihood, the mathematical probability of one person being born on earth that will fulfill eight of these, that he would be born in Bethlehem. What's the likelihood? Is it one in 10,000? Is it one in 300,000? What's the likelihood that he would be born? And he picks eight of those prophecies and he found that the odds of one man coming along and coincidentally fulfilling all eight prophecies were one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, I could bore you with the details of what 1 in 10 to the 17th power looks like, but that's a bunch of zeros. It's astronomical, and it's only eight of the prophecies. There are over 300 there. Why? Because God sent us a photo before we ever showed up at baggage claim to let us know when the Messiah shows up, this is the roadmap, so you will recognize him when he gets here. I want to minimize the case of mistaken identity. And the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled... A person would have no control over them. I mean, you can't control the house you're born in or the family you're born into or the city you're born into. Many of those prophecies could not have been manipulated. They happened in the sovereign plan of God and revealed to us in the Christmas story that God is a God who keeps His promise. You may not be able to keep a promise. The people that love you, that have hurt you along the way, may not be able to keep their promises. I may not be able to keep my promises. But God always keeps His promises. He always keeps His Word. Galatians 4 says this in verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. That's the good news of the gospel. God's purpose was to send his son as a perfect sacrifice for us to have a way into eternity with God, but it wasn't just for eternity. He wanted to give us a perfect example to know how to live our life on earth. And all this goes back to the story I told you about the mis the preconceived ideas and assumptions at the airport. Eventually, the middleman on the phone conversation finally corrected the driver's wrong assumptions and opened his eyes to the possibilities that a pastor may not be a 75-year-old man with a polyester suit and a briefcase. There are different kinds of pastors, and they all come in different shapes and sizes. But what happened? What really happened? My guess is that in the moments that followed Their initial conversation, this guy on the other end of the line was somebody the driver trusted. Presented that man with undeniable evidence and information as to my identity. And it tipped the scales to the point where he soon realized who I really was. And soon he abandoned what he sincerely thought about my identity. And he discovered the truth. We met up and laughed about it on the way to the event. Maybe you grew up with a preconceived notion of who Jesus was or who he wasn't. Maybe you were very sincere about it. Maybe your mind has been made up through the years that maybe he was a good man or a good prophet, but he wasn't divine. Maybe, maybe you thought if we just all live by the Beatitudes and we listen to his teaching and you would be shocked to believe how many people go to Christian churches all over America on days like today that believe if I just go and I listen to the gospel and I live by the Beatitudes that the world would be a better place. I believe that, but I don't really believe that Jesus is the son of God. He was a good historical 
figure. If that's where you land, you have, you're involved in a case of mistaken identity. My prayer is that you will immerse yourself in a study of the word, a study of the gospels. Let God reveal himself to you that he was more than a man. He was more than a prophet. He literally is the savior of the world. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior. He is Christ the Lord. Former astronaut James Irwin said, um, James Irwin was a Christian. He was an astronaut that had been to the moon. And after he came back from the moon and was famous for the rest of his life for that trip, he signed every letter, ended it with this statement. Every letter concluded this way. There is one thing better than a man walking on the moon, and that is God walking on the earth. James Irwin understood the story, the story of God. He understood that God always keeps His promises. He always has. He always will. Let me just encourage you. I believe it's time that that God's upper story and the lower events of your regular everyday life story merge together. I really believe it's time his story and your story become the same story. Some of us in this room have heard us preach through the last several weeks and talk about God's story and our story. And Maybe you're a guest here today and God's story is running this way and your story is kind of running this way. And God's gift and plan and purpose for your life was so that you would be in a room like this and it would become clear to you through the tug of his Holy Spirit that, you know, God's story is kind of running over here and yours is kind of running here. And lovingly through the gospel, he's pulling your heart back together because when he planned for your life, he planned for those two stories to be the same. His story and your story. Life isn't always easy. Life isn't always fair, even when those two stories are together, but you just, you're never alone. And I just really in my heart today, as I prepared for the service, believe that God wants to, to invite some people back into his story. I believe the king of the universe, the savior of the world wants to come live in your heart today. Whether you've never known Jesus Christ as your Lord or Maybe you say, you know, Pastor, I I have as a kid or another season of my life. But I guess I would say I'm wondering spiritually. I don't really have a relationship with God. I don't really pray. I don't read the Bible. Kind of some discrepancies in my life that I know are not pleasing to God. And I sense him today tugging me. I feel like he wants to be with me. And I want to serve him. I want to give my life to him. Like right now, today. I want you to be able to do that. I want us to pray a prayer of surrender before we leave this morning. And I want you to pray this with me. I want you to pray this with me, if you will. I want us all to pray it out loud together, but especially those of you that say, you know what, maybe it's been a case of mistaken identity. But today I want him to be Lord. I want to give him my life. Or maybe you wondered and you're ready to come back. Well, today's the day. Come back home. 
Would you pray this with me all over the building? And let's say it to Jesus today in a moment of surrender. Jesus, I surrender. I give you my life. I confess that I have sinned. I have fallen short of God's standard. But Jesus, will you come and raise me to the standard? I confess with my mouth, you are Lord. I believe in my heart, you were raised from the dead. Today, I give you my life. Jesus, will you help me? Help me live for you. Let this moment, this moment of decision, be a moment of life change. I surrender all in Jesus' name. Amen. As you bow your heads all over this place, I just want to know because I want to know how to pray. I promise you I will not embarrass you. But if you prayed that prayer and gave your life to Jesus or you kind of been wandering a long way out and you prayed that prayer with earnest in your heart to recommit and surrender your life to Jesus, would you slip your hand up high enough to let me see it? I want to know how to pray for you. I promise. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you. Thank you. I see there. I've seen seven or eight hands today. They're still going up. Ten, twelve. Thank you. Fourteen, fifteen. Thank you so much. You can put them down. I believe today is the first day of the rest of your life. No longer a case of mistaken identity. He's my Savior, my Lord for eternity, but He's also my example to know how to live this life on earth. Would you stand with me all over this place, please, right before we walk out of this building? Prayer team, would you help me? Will you make yourself available today so that we can pray here? This is what I, this is what I think would be a shame. <laughs> I think it would be a shame to talk about a God who, who uses people, a God who has a plan, a God who keeps his promises, and there'll be those of us in this room that need an intervention in our home, an intervention by God in our physical body, an intervention by God in our, in our finances, and not believe the same God that broke into human history with the baby, not believe that he, he can't break into this moment right now. He can. So we want to provide an opportunity to agree with you in prayer that he will. I believe he has a plan and a purpose for your life. I believe he wants to break into your situation. He's the same miracle worker that he was in Mark's gospel. But if you raised your hand a moment ago and you said, I've given my life to Christ or I'm recommitting my heart to Christ, this is what I want you to do. I want you to, I I know it's inconvenient. I'm not going to embarrass you. Other people are going to be coming, but I challenge you. This is what I challenge you to do. To take a moment, not rush out of this building and come to one of these prayer partners at the front of this building and let them know. I prayed that prayer with pastor. I recommitted my heart to Jesus or I gave my life to Jesus. You say, why is that so important? Because the Bible says if you confess him before men, he'll confess you before his father, which is in heaven. And I don't believe if you can't, if you, if you don't, if you don't have the faith to confess it in church, if you can't confess it in here, you're going to have a hard time living it out there. So in a moment that celebrates a decision you just made, I really want to challenge you today. Before you get out, find one of these people and say, I prayed that prayer with Pastor Brian today, and today's a new day for me. Jesus is changing my life.
I'm going to pray a, I'm going to pray a benediction, just a blessing over this entire body. And if you need to respond to the altar for any need of prayer or miracle in your life, God keeps his promises. And those of you that, that prayed that prayer with me and committed your life while the aisles are open, I challenge you before people begin to fill them to leave, make your way to the front while I pray this blessing. Father, I pray that you will bless them and keep them. That you will make your face shine down upon them. That you will be gracious to them. That you will turn your countenance their direction. And you will give them peace. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. These altars will remain open today. God bless you.